ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕਾ ਖਾਲਸਾ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕੀ ਫਤਿਹ as usual the sikh renaissance returns with another compellingly intense episode before starting we are now taking pledges from our listeners and subscribers so if anyone wants to donate then please feel free to go on to our substack and donate based on what you want to commit your monetary pledges your financial pledges help us to continue the seva further in awakening seeks to their heritage you might have heard the term machiavellian used in less than virtuous contexts heard about machiavellian ceos and leaders exploiting people to their advantage or just altogether been influenced to believe that machiavellian is a synonym for evil yet this is far from the truth nicolo machiavelli's infamous reputation as a political delinquent is unearned and unfair it originates from the catholic counterculture movement attacking his legacy after his demise owing to its own inability to defend Jesus Christ from the valid criticisms leveled by Machiavelli. Who was Niccolò Machiavelli and why is his treatise The Prince still relevant after almost five centuries? And above all, why is all this relevant to the Sikhs, especially today? First, Machiavelli. Niccolò Machiavelli was born to a prominent family of courtiers during the era of Italian dissolution as Rome and various other European powers weighed for control of central Italy. This was Rome, the city-state, and not the Roman Empire. His birth in 1469 was significant for his family as he was their first son. From the onset, the young Niccolò was trained in the classics, politics, history, and military strategy, among other elements. Upon becoming an adult, he commenced a career as a diplomat under the ruling Borgia clan and even served as a successful military commander in one conflict, building his army from scratch due to his well-founded distrust of mercenaries. Machiavelli's success, however, was short-lived. The Medici clan acquired power after routing the Borgias and after a short period of arraignment in which he was heavily tortured, he was exiled to his farm estate, far removed from the center of power. Here, as he would explain to his friend in a letter, after working for the full day, he would return to his estate and clean himself. As night fell, he would sit reading the classics and other religio-political, socio-political works, metaphorically representing them as a conclave of their long-dead authors, assembling to answer his profound questions. One can detect hints of stoicism here. When Zeno asked his oracle how best to live his life, she answered, converse daily with the dead. We have a similar injunction in Gurbani. ਬਾਬਣੀਆਂ ਕਹਾਣੀਆਂ ਪੁੱਤ ਸਪੁੱਤ ਕਰੇ ਜੇ ਸਤਗੁਰ ਭਾਵੇ ਸੋ ਮਨ ਲੈਨ ਸੋਈ ਕਰਮ ਕਰੇ the tales of the righteous elders make the youth pure and wise if they accept the truth the satgur within their minds then they only do that which is virtuous and this shabad is on ang 951
The outcome of this excluded study of the long dead was that not only did Machiavelli retain his sanity when far removed from his beloved home and its happenings, but also produced one of the greatest works on human affairs that he entitled The Prince. For Machiavelli, pledges were always evolving and what is pledged today can be undone for political exigency tomorrow. And what better way to establish this than by dedicating his book to none other than the Medicis, who were responsible for his downfall. Yet, this is where we see the man's strength of spirit, iron will, and intellect. He was determined that his work survive into posterity, and for this reason, he refrained from inciting enmity further, instead making his foes his medium of immortality. What makes the prince relevant even today. The world of power is not clean. It is far from pure as the Greeks envisioned. Aristotle proclaimed that politics was but an extension of ethics begetting social good. For Machiavelli, contrary to popular perception, ethics was important but only as an ends and not a means. The prince imagines the perfect ruler, but not in the sense of revelatory religions that argue about godly perfection based on self-sacrifice. Rather, the prince is a consummate ruler comprehending human nature and manipulating it to the highest degree to furnish the success and realization of both his own mission and his own vision. There are many who argue that Machiavelli refuses to discriminate between good and bad. This is far from the truth. The prince posits there to be a good and a bad. The good is what is done for the benefit of the masses, even if the masses are manipulated for their own good. The bad is when the power to control the destiny of nations is foolishly forfeited or lost. There is a cold and calculating analysis here done by Machiavelli, establishing that to try and fail is more grievous than to fail without trying, as the resources wasted are often irretrievable. The prince identifies that the problem is not with good insofar how it is carried out, but rather with those who envision carrying it out. Take, for example, Vitaly Malkin's arguments in Dangerous Illusions. Should we not worship the devil because of his success rate while discarding God because of his failure rate? Similarly, Machiavelli proposes that the problem is not with good as a concept, but in how good people fail to understand how to carry out good. The bad have no scruples in how to execute their schemes, resorting to every underhanded trick in the book. Machiavelli argues in the prince that the good must learn from the bad if they are to achieve their desired results. We must understand here that Machiavelli is not arguing that the means justify the ends, but the ends justify the means. At the level of power and wielding power over the masses, there is no personal value. Rather, there is a statesman's value. The prince accurately substantiates that this is not some new revelation, but a fact of life that has existed, exists, and will continue to exist in the future. Let us study some prescient examples throughout history, including Sikh history. Rome was founded by Romulus, 
Romulus and Remus were twins said to have been suckled by a she-wolf after being hidden by their mother. Mighty warlords, they carved out significant territory for themselves and decided to build a city. Remus was kind-hearted, whereas Romulus was more practical. Arguing among themselves, both brothers resorted to arms until Romulus finally slew Remus and built Rome by himself. The Christians of Machiavelli's day portrayed Romulus burning in hell, invoking the fictional tale of Cain and Abel. But for Machiavelli, Romulus was following the state man's virtue. After all, Remus' big-heartedness blinded him to reality and he would have wasted the lives of his followers in becoming impractical dormant causes. Romulus, on the other hand, darkened his soul by slaying his brother, but to usher in an era of prosperity, security, and expansion for his people. As a wielder of power, Romulus, according to Machiavelli, was excusable for the slaying no matter how heinous, considering that he committed fratricide or what is bad, but for the greater good. He killed not only in his own defense, but in the defense of his vision, and a vision that gave rise to one of the mightiest empires the world has ever known. Guru Harai proved Darasiko's most prominent ally as the prince fled from his brother Aurangzeb. Even routing the Mughals near Ropar preventing them from cutting off Dara's escape route to Lahore. Victorious, the Guru and his army entered Lahore alongside Raja Tarajand and formed a coalition of allies to place Dara on the imperial throne after displacing the fanatical Islamo-fascist Aurangzeb and the Naqshbandi terrorists. Dara, however, proved loathsomely apathetic and the Guru took leave of him citing that getting his Sikhs killed pointlessly was of no use if the very man they envisioned restoring some sanity to the subcontinent could barely fight for himself. Brutal? Yes, definitely. Practical? Yes. The self-professed Sikhs of today would argue that the Guru did not do right by Dada. The reality is that the Guru balanced two outcomes. Aiding a pathetic Dara would entail defeat for all purposes, leading to unnecessary but draconian repressions against the Sikhs, dooming their future. Leaving him would open the Sikhs to Aurangzeb's direct gaze, but also ensure an uneasy ceasefire, allowing the Sikhs to strengthen their mountain strongholds and their financial dominance for a future clash. The Example of Bai Kanaya Contrary to modern preconceptions spread by the likes of Ravi Singh stands as another prominent example. The Hindu-Muslim combined reserved a special policy of barbarity for Sikhs. If Sikh warriors were apprehended on the field of combat, they were to be dishonored by forcibly shearing their hair and then skinned or boiled alive if they refused to revert to Hinduism or convert to Islam. During these times, aiders or those who salvaged weapons of the dead and aided the dying warriors of their sides were a prominent aspect of the battlefield. Among them was one Kanaya who commenced aiding enemy soldiers who surrendered to the Sikhs. Whereas the usual policy was to quickly execute them, Guru Gobind Singh ordered Kanaya to allow them to live. Why? Even though this irked sections of the Sikhs, 
These troops would return to their camps and spread discontent among their colleagues regarding the high conduct of the Sikhs, compelling them to question their own religious beliefs and convince many like General Sayyid Khan to desert their fellow Muslims and become Khalsa Singhs and fight to the death for their Guru. In the age-old strategy, the 10th Guru through psychological manipulation made his enemy their own medium of destruction. The Dal Khalsa, among others, was approached by the Marathas in late 1760 to join them in a pitched battle formation at Panipat against the Islamo-fascist Afghani infestation. The Jats under their king Ranjit Singh outright refused emphasizing that the Afghans were masters at pitched battles and could not be defeated citing how the few Maratha garrisons stationed on the Punjab frontier to silence a disconsolate Adina Beg had been outright annihilated and saved only by the rapid intervention of the Sikhs. The Dal Khalsa, as a result, refused. The Maratha suffered casualties exceeding 60,000 at Panipat as the Afghans outright massacred them, pivoting the strategic elements of the battlefield to their own advantage. Their women were gang-raped and transported to Afghanistan as sex slaves and retailed according to Islamic moors. The Dal Khalsa saved those women who were being transported through Punjab, but those outside Punjab were left to their fate. Now, of course, many of the selfless brigade will claim that the Dal Khalsa refused to live up to the moral tradition of the Gurus. The Dal Khalsa, however, complied to this tradition and did so in full. It refused to risk the lives of Sikhs in an unnecessary confrontation, electing instead to remove the Afghan degeneracy from its own territories, but never risking its existence in territories not under its control, inhabited by people not accepting its dominance. It refrained from rescuing the Marathas from the consequences of their hot-headed stupidity. Even Vaheguru does not allow one to evade the consequences of their acts. Narayananandas Kaipuli Gavar Dokta Sokta Thore Karam Ri You foolish being, why do you blame the sinless maker for whatever befalls you in life? Pain and pleasure, in whose hands are these but yours? And to end, Purblo kite karamanamite Rikar kentache mohe japilaram chenam. The consequences of our transgressions are never fully effaced, my beloved life, and this is why I dedicate myself to my Maker's path. This is found on Ang 695 of the Guru Granth Sahib. Moving on. Franklin D. Roosevelt, the 32nd President of the United States, was fully cognizant with the fact by mid-1940 that Adolf Hitler's rapid rise in European politics could not be ignored for long. His declaration of war on Britain would naturally involve the world into a massive conflagration like World War I. A weak, unarmed, and economically impoverished Britain would fall swifter than France, cementing German dominance in Europe, cutting off America from the Atlantic and threatening a German naval offensive. But on the other hand, a resurgent Japan in the Pacific, when aligned with Germany, could strangle American dominance and security in the Pacific. Resultantly, Roosevelt lied to the US Congress and public 
daily spending thousands of dollars on advertising his neutrality and making it a fundamental cornerstone of his re-election campaign. But in the meantime, he was investing millions in the American arms manufacturing industry in the name of warding off the effects of continued recession and combating increasing inflation and then dispatching these arms to European allies in the name of security. This usage of convenient lies and half-truths blinded both Congress and the US public with their neutrality sentiments. As Roosevelt would confide in his aides, neither comprehended the precarious position the United States would find itself in if it refrained from aiding its European and Pacific allies against the Axis. Roosevelt's lies witnessed a prepared if not well-prepared America able to quickly recover post Pearl Harbor and preserve its dominance in both the Atlantic and the Pacific while rescuing the European powers from the Axis scourge, allowing a century and more of American dominance. In Machiavelli's eyes, these would not be considered manipulative acts arising from the bed. He would class them as acts of necessary cruelty, what the world considers as being bad, but done for what the world considers good. Let us consider this as it is portrayed in The Prince. Power is neither moral nor immoral. It is immoral, that is without any moral position or standing. Its execution reflects immorality and morality, that is immorality and morality, but it is also necessary to be held on to. Necessary cruelty are the acts done to obtain power and then to retain this power while using it for the greater good. Unnecessary cruelty are acts that are excessive, both in usage of power and when obtaining it. Let us relook at the examples from a Machiavellian perspective. It is wrong to desert allies. People argue that selfless martyrdom, even for the most useless of individuals, is a worthy act and nets divine rewards. But they are fools. As the seventh Nanak, Guru Harai knew, all such talk to be feeble. A renowned warrior and surgeon, he was also an astute leader and Machiavellian in the true sense of the word. He aided Dara to instill iron in his spine and usher in a new era of security for his Sikhs if Dara succeeded in displacing Aurangzeb. But seeing Dara's apathy, he left him to his own devices with Dara eventually apprehended and savagely tortured by the Islamo-fascist Aurangzeb. From Machiavelli's perspective, the Guru did right by looking out for the interests of his community alone. The ancients identified that a selfish world was much better than a selfless world, for in a selfish world, personal interest would always restore equilibrium and prevent untoward conflict, as these interests and their holders would stand to be directly impacted by adverse forces. Leaving Dara was by no means bad, but an act of necessary cruelty for the greater good. What was this greater good? The preservation of Sikhi and the Sikhs for which the Guru had been warring from the onset of his incumbency. Manipulation is bad. It involves the reorienting of individuals without their knowledge on a path contrary to what they might have originally pursued. It is arguable that the 10th Guru's manipulations of his enemies through Kanaya went far and beyond the call of duty, 
as war should be left on the battlefield. Yet such stupidity is uttered by those who have never participated in a single conflict in their lives. Most warfare occurs in the arena of psychology, and this is where the guru who was outnumbered proved resourceful. He performed an act of necessary cruelty through Kanaya for the greater good, the dissolution of the foe for the sanctity and security of his Sikhs. Had he met the Guru, Machiavelli would have bowed and kissed his feet for such a beautiful execution of the strategy. It should be noted here that the Puritan Santa Baba culture imposed on the Sikhs by the British sees many so-called Mahapurks and their followers argue that such strategies run contrary to Gurmat. We note that these same people use a similar Machiavellian contention when they claim that the Gurus hunted to liberate souls deserving salvation. The irony? They use the Machiavellian logic of necessary cruelty for the greater good. Such examples permeate history. Machiavelli is emphatic in the prince that he is not revealing anything new but discussing the advantages derivable from an adept mastery of human nature. We now turn our attention to another aspect of the prince. <clears throat> the ability to enter hearts and minds with seemingly supernatural is more naturalistic and the easiest of all strategies to plan, but the hardest to execute. We witness this with Guru Hargobind's liberation of 52 kings from Gwalior. He entered Jahagir's mind and manipulated him from within. How and why? He knew the emperor preferred himself as a humanist after removing the Islamo-terrorist Sheikh Ahmad Shah Sirhindi from his entourage. This is similar to how Gandhi outwitted the British by spreading media photographs of the British police charging his followers. <clears throat> the British in Britain were naturally shaken given their own self-image as humanists and among other factors compelled Indian independence. Sadly, the Sikhs have been manipulated by this very strategy and never been its masters from Master Tara Singh onwards. All this begs the question, does Machiavelli believe in good? Yes, he does. But his good is not the general public's good. His good is one of the stoic conception, especially that of Panaceus, the connector who argued during Roman heydays that good and enlightened men must be like the pancreatists. The Pancreatists were practitioners of the Pancreation combat grappling art. Panaceus argued that just like a veteran Pancreatist forever ready to ward off and deal teeth-shattering blows, so too must good men be prepared to defend themselves. Similarly, Machiavelli also espoused a strategic Pancreation where one, like any good martial artist, learns from their opponent's moves. What is good for Machiavelli? The triumph of the mind over one's own nature and that of others by recognizing evil and bad will always exist and strategy is learnable from the very worst so it can be used for the very good. This is good. The Machiavellian good. This is why he was dismissive of Jesus Christ, blaming him for the continued collapse of Western civilizations, arguing that without a family to root him and without a sword to arm himself with, Jesus argued for love that blinds the most intelligent of humans, leading to the decline of their society. 
He writes in the history of Florence how Christianity's emphasis on love and its large-scale adoption by a hedonistic Roman elite seeking an easy religion led to them opening their borders to barbarians who initially started intermarrying with them and converting their women. The offspring from this coupling proved more loyal to their fathers and joined in in sacking the very Rome that had sheltered them and given them life. We are seeing this with Europe today. There are many more intricacies of the prince worth learning. Alexander the Great captured nations with a centralized power structures embodied in a king. By supplanting the king with himself, he acquired total control over their empires. But where there were no kings or the kings were subject to barons and retainers, he had a harder time as the decentralization of power allowed every man to imagine himself a king and confront him. This was exactly how Cortes gained control over the Aztecs by capturing their king, the Huitlatuni or Emperor Moctezuma. It was the beginning of the end for the Aztecs. Machiavelli was well cognizant with the fact that an intelligent minority can drive an overconfident majority. This is why he articulated that minorities never spot aggressors or defenders, but pretend to spot them on their faces. If they threw in their lot with the victor, they would be made a victim of their interests, while the vanquished would naturally join in to efface them. Isn't this what happened with the Sikhs in 1984? Muslims vanquished by Hindus joined in the genocide of Sikhs. There are many more strategies in the prince. When one reads it, one converses with Machiavelli. It is designed to invoke a reaction from the reader, to engage them in a mental dialogue with the man himself, the author. Machiavelli believed in the power of good, but not its ability to win by itself on its own grounds. To prevent its erosion by the bad, he wrote the prince. The Sikhs have been on the receiving end of better strategy for a century now. Can we reverse this? Why not? What is stopping us? If the Sikh youth start reading such works, Understanding their sense of strategy and then progressing forward with planning, we can again dominate but only if we imbibe the lessons of the past. It makes sense to discuss the prince and Gurdwaras, our central hubs among ourselves, to do vichar over it on days dedicated to such activities. Otherwise, Machiavelli continues to speak but the wrong people use his principles against us. To do the greater good, we must do what is necessarily bad, but within the limits of necessary cruelty. This, after all, was the path of Miripiri. The path of truth and morality. Miri, or political power, arises from within the truth. It is acquired for the truth and its upkeep. Piri emanates from morality. Those who are moral in their personal lives express pity. When such individuals are thrust into the realm of power or seek power, they imbibe midi. But just because midi is sourced from the truth, it does not demand the truth full-time as we imagine it, that is speaking the truth. Sometimes for the upkeep of the truth, we have to rely on strategic falsifications as aforementioned in the above examples. A lie without cause is unnecessary and sinful. A lie for a just cause is performing what is considered, but for the greater good. The decision 
is the leaders. What do we sacrifice and what do we retain? What is good and what is bad? These are the things we need to consider as Sikhs. This, after all, is the path to strategy. We need to understand the deceitful nature of power wielders does not mean that power itself is necessarily deceitful. Power is immoral. It is without any morals. How it is used is what lends it the emotive and actioning context. Consider the reality. Think about it. Baba Banda Singh Bhadar. Nwab Kapoor Singh. The Dal Khalsa Sardars. Maharaja Ranjit Singh. Professor Gurmukh Singh. By Harbandar Singh Sandhu, and how many more examples do we have of Sikhs using Machiavellian tactics to win? Think about it. What Machiavelli has given us is nothing new, but just a reiteration of human nature and how best to manipulate it for the greater good. It is hard to believe that what has been contended by the Christians regarding the founding of Rome is somehow morally wrong. When we consider that Romulus was more practical and envisioned a mighty state for his people, while Remus, his brother, was more than ready to sell out that idea for those tribals he considered distressed and oppressed, we understand the difference between them. Good men must fight. This is the latest argument we propose in our article on the Sikh Renaissance Substack to arms, why good men must fight. Evil exists. There is no point in debating its existence. It exists. But we must learn to fight and be Machiavellian while doing that. Machiavelli gave us some profound lessons. Good men do not fight for others. They inspire them to fight for themselves. Consider some relevant examples, Guru Hargobind's injunctions to the Punjabi peasantry to arm itself. When the low castes approached Guru Gobind Singh Ji at Anandapur, begging for an interage of Sikhs to protect them, the Guru detained them in his dungeons. He then forced all of them to live the barracks lifestyle of his Khalsa warriors, breaking them both in body and spirit, causing them to allege he was a tyrant. What seemed tyranny to the low castes was deemed as a harshly fair treatment by onlookers. The Guru commanded them to shut their mouths and heed his words. His Khalsa went without any financial recompense. It warred day and night to realize its political model. It was comprised of high castes, low castes, the rich, the poor, all united by Guru Nanak's continuing war against religio-political tyranny. What right did the low castes have to expect it to sacrifice itself for them?
Good men do not die for others, but influence them to die for their own liberty. Good men, wise men, sagacious men, they well know that their vision is correct and none other can be allowed to dilute it. If they fight for others, they demand total submission to themselves and their cause. Otherwise, they leave the enslaved to remain slaves. Liberty is a responsibility, and what right do we have of others to die for us if you're not prepared to die for our own selves? And this is exactly what Machiavelli argues. To do good is a responsibility. But if you're not willing to shoulder the burdens of that responsibility that consist of how we get there to be able to do the good, we are not worthy of wielding power, and it will be taken from us, and eventually used against us. Our request to seek youth listening to us and reading us, please consider reading The Prince by Niccolo Machiavelli. That is all for today. Thank you very much. Until next time, you are the Sikh Renaissance. Vaheguru Ji Ka Khalsa, Vaheguru Ji Ki Fateh.